You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. And Father, in this morning hour, we, we do hunger for you, and we ask that you would draw our hearts near to you. And Lord, where we feel an acute lack of hunger, Lord, I pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to see the beauty of who you are in Jesus. And that that would fill us with righteous desire for you and for your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. And I, I, I guess we're landing the, the first Corinthians airplane today. Uh, these are... Amen. <laughs> uh, so we're in our final few verses here. And I, I, thought, I thought Zach's... Uh, for those of you who got to hear Zach preach last week in the nave, I, I thought Zach's use of announcements as the kind of metaphor to get us through this last bit of Corinthians was really clever and a kind of helpful way to get a sense of what Paul is doing in this final chapter in Corinthians. So I, I'm, I'm going to sort of borrow from Zach and, and then can use one of a, a di- maybe a little bit different metaphor as well. What I thought as I read these verses, 12 through 24, and we're really going to only focus on two, to be honest, um, was this sense of what parents do when they're dropping their kids off to some sort of summer camp experience or maybe to college and giving them a litany of things to do right before they say goodbye. Uh, We had a, a son, um, one who's actually home, who said he's not feeling well today. Uh, he's home right now. Um, matter of fact, I told him b- before church, I said, you know, if you don't go to church, you, you, you're going to miss Daddy's sermon. And he didn't seem to be, mind that one bit. Um, but we, we dropped uh, our son off to camp for a whole month. And I can remember, you know, right here we are and the stuff's in the, in the cabin. It's a bit new experience for our family. And, and we're like, all right, so, you know, uh, uh, ride us and change your sheets and brush your teeth and, for God's sake, some hygiene and ride us, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and so that's kind of what this final scene is here. Our kids, they tend to dismiss these moments. Yeah, 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 just keep on moving. But like the announcements of last week's, I think perhaps these machine gun worth of instructions that we have here in these final few verses of Corinthians should cause us to pause. Um, the larger view here, and I'll just look at this very quickly, it's this Paul is giving them a kind of laundry list. By the way, Apollos, a very gifted order, you all know him. He wanted to come visit you, but um, now this is an interesting translation question, by the way, and we'll get bogged down in this, but it says, I urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will. And there's some debate about who the his is that we're talking about. My tendency is to think that Paul is saying it wasn't God's will at the time for him to come. It wasn't that Apollos was like, well, um, you know, I wanted to come see you, but not not really. Um, there, there, there's a new uh, Jim Gaffigan comedy uh, uh, bit out on, um, on Amazon. I don't know if you've all seen this or not, but it, it's very funny. And one of his little pieces, he says in there, um, why, why is it that when we RSVP to people, we never really tell them the truth, right? I'm completely free, but just don't want to come, right? That's, the, that, that, that's not what Apollos is doing here. He's not saying I, I'm free, but I, he's, I think what's going on is Apollos is saying, um, this wasn't God's will or timing for me, but he wants to come. I'm going to skip 13 and 14 because that's where we're going to sit. Then he gives them instruction that Stephanus, who's one of their leaders, is coming back. And when he comes, give him the kind of hearing that he needs to be given. Rec- recognize him. 
Then he thanks God for those that have come to refresh his spirit. Then he makes this statement about wishing for the Lord to return to make everything new. And then he leaves them with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's this kind of, again, a kind of litany laundry list. Before I go, let me remind you of X, Y, Z, and he moves on. I want to look with you this morning quickly at verses 13 to 14 because I think this pepper mill of, of injunctions from Paul, is a, they're good, good things to hang our hat on here as we end, end this book. And let me read this to you again. You had it in your, in your, in your, you have it in your bulletin, verses 13 and 14. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men and be strong. I'd like to put that together and just say, be courageous and have strength. Um, Let all that you do uh, be done in love. You know, there's something significant about the last words that someone leaves you at the final kind of parting injunction. Hey, before I go, remember this. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. And let everything that you do be, do, be done in love. I'd like to look at these with you quickly this morning. With the first one, Paul reminds them to be watchful or to keep alert. There's a bumper sticker that maybe you've seen on cars around town that says, Jesus is returning. Look busy. Right. Um, I think that's not at all what Paul's saying here, but I, the, there's this sense of urgency um, that what Paul is saying here when he says to be watchful, he's saying something very specific. It's about the promise and a recognition that Jesus is returning. Live life, Paul is saying, in the reality of Christ's return as Savior and Judge. I think there's a constant pressure that all of us live into, I know that I live into this as well, to recognize that our lives and our future are more than we can experience and know in the current and material moment. It's a challenge, I think, for all of us to recognize that the warp and woof of daily existence can so consume our existence that we can forget that there's more to it than what we're experiencing right now. And here Paul, a kind of clarion call here, be watchful. Be mindful that Jesus is returning. Be mindful that your existence right now is not locked into this current moment, but you're participating in realities that are bigger than you even know. And here's a call for, from Paul to kind of be reminded that that's, that's who we are. This is a wake-up call, a jolt to remind ourselves that reality includes so much more than yours and my limited experience of, of that reality. I ran across this quote from, from John Calvin. He said, certainly the Christian person must be so disposed that he will think that he has to do with God in all of his life. That's in effect what Paul is saying here. Be watchful. Recognize the reality of Christ's being and his return. And here Calvin says the Christian person must be disposed that he will think that he has to do with God in all of his life. There's a, there's a tendency, I think, that all of us have, myself included, to sequester certain aspects of our life off into various quarters. And here Paul is saying that all of life is lived under the umbrella of Christ's existence and his being and his return. And Calvin goes on to say, if he considers this, he thinks he will render him an account of all of his works, so also he will align his plans with regards them as fixed on him and on him alone. So here Paul, right out of the gate, says on his way out of the door, he says, remember, um, Jesus is returning. Be watchful. Be mindful of that. 
The second injunction that we have from Paul, and this is going to be a little, uh, brace yourselves, it's going to be a little didactic this morning. We're just going to go through these. But the second injunction that we have from Paul, he says to stand firm in the faith. Now, this is important here. Notice the language that Paul uses, stand firm in the faith. How has the faith been defined in 1 Corinthians? Think about chapter 15. I pass over to you that which I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and he was raised again. Um, There's this understanding here from Paul that he's calling on us to what? To stand firm, to be firmly rooted and grounded in the faith. And this is important here. These pronouns get important. Notice that he does not say, stand firm in your faith. I love this. Um, But stand firm in the faith. Uh, I, I think the constant challenge that we have as Christians is to fall back on this contractual sense of what it means to be in relationship with our living God. Um, I'm glad Paul didn't say, at least he does in other places, but he didn't say here to stand firm that your strength, the courage he's about to call them to, is a courage that's rooted and grounded in the subjectivity of the person. Have really deep faith. Um, Encountering even family members recently who I can sense are sort of wrapped up in this um, endless circle and struggle to recognize that if I can just believe more and if I have more faith, that I can kind of strong-arm God to do what it is that I want Him to do. That, that's not what Paul's saying here. He's not calling you to this sort of depth of quality of faith. He's calling you to a recognition here that if you want to stand firm in a world that's moving and swirling, in a world that's not marked at all by stability and standing strong, then you need to put your feet firmly on the faith. Something that's external to you, that's been handed over to you, that by the effective power of the Spirit then takes residence inside of you and gives you the courage that you need to be able to make your way through a moving and torturous and winding world. Stand firm in, in the faith. Not in necessarily your faith, but stand firm in, in the faith. I think this is a really massive challenge in our current moment culturally both personally in our families, in the world, in the city in which we live. What does it mean to be a self? What is my identity? Who am I? What does it mean to even be? Who am I? And here Paul is giving you something to put your feet on when it comes to asking those very pertinent existential questions about human being. Who am I? What does it mean to be? We are those who stand firm in something that's outside of us in the person and work of Jesus. We're those who stand firm because we recognize that something's been done for us and we've been drawn into, and this is kind of mind-boggling when you think about it from the standpoint of Paul's thought, we've been brought into the very life of God himself because our position is in Jesus. It's who we are. Um, I'm going to embarrass my mom, but she's here this morning. And uh, my mother told me this once. She told me this thousands of times growing up, and I think it's one of her greatest gifts to me. You know, Mark, remember who you are in Christ. 
Remember your identity is one that's found in the secure and stable person of another. Remember that, if, again, when we're lost in insecurity, and look, we all battle it in our own ways, don't we? When we're lost in the insecurities that amount within our own selves, what Paul is saying is, do you want to find security and stability in your own person and identity? It's not going to be found by turning internal. Uh, deep contemplative exercises. Is that, that's not where stability is necessarily going to be found. Stability is found in God's grace of drawing you outside of yourself and the release of the tyranny of yourself and the stability of the one who's praying and interceding for you to the Father by the Spirit right now. I don't, I don't know what's more liberating than that, than a call to recognize that if you want to be firm and stand strong, then you're going to find it not within the resources of, of your own human abilities and your own spiritual whatever. The resources are found in the good and safe work of another who's done it for you. And I think that's the key to joy. Those who compare themselves among themselves, we read in the Bible, are not wise. The constant jockeying that we do in our world to sort of size ourselves up by others so that we can either make ourselves feel better or maybe for some reason make ourselves feel worse. I mean, I think what Paul is saying here throughout this letter and in this place right here is that that's a fool's errand that will lead you again to no place of stability. Want to know where stability is found? By recognizing who you really are in the person and work of Jesus. That unleashes you from the tyranny of your own self. I don't know what thoughts thoughts haunt your mind. I know the ones that haunt my own. And again, what we have to be called to here, and I think this is what Paul is doing as he's sending us off to camp, right, and giving us our final instructions. What's Paul telling us? You want to be stable? You want stability in this world? You want security, firmness? You're going to find it in the faith that's been handed over to you in the person and work of Jesus. Well, Paul's not done. He goes on to say, be courageous and be strong. And what I love about this section right here of Paul is, and I, I, I'm a firm, firm believer in this, Paul is an incredible reader of the Bible. Paul loves the Scriptures, just like Jesus loved the Scriptures, loves them. And I don't think Paul is drawing this language of strength and courage here out of thin air. There's a, I think he's pulling this right out of the book of Psalms. Psalm 31, verses 23 and 24. Can I read these to you? Love the Lord, all you his saints. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all of you who wait on the Lord. Can I read that one more time? It's worth repeating. Love the Lord, all you his saints. Be strong, the psalmist says. Take heart, a courage in your heart, all you who wait on the Lord. For the Apostle Paul, I believe he understands courage and strength as the very opposites of boasting and arrogance. Why? Because the psalmists have told us. Where is true strength to be found? In loving the Lord and in waiting on Him. Love the Lord Wait on him. So you have that sort of enveloping the call to be courageous and to have strength. What do you do? You love the Lord and you wait on him. True strength is found in loving the Lord, waiting on him, a confident trust in his promises. Say this. And by the way, I like the setting. It feels a little more homely, so I'm talking around the campfire here, I guess. Increasingly, I'm, I'm aware 
of the need for courage. I've been thinking a lot about this, actually. In in part because of some conversations I'm having with my children and with myself. For courage. I think when younger, a younger man, you know, I thought courage was something that was found in my own bravado or my own willingness to lead in the difficult moments. I think I took a a certain kind of internal pride that when it came to to flight or fight, my instincts really were kind of fight. I mean, mean, I'm probably going to lose, but, you know, we'll do that. Um, So there's this sort of internal resolve uh, where courage is found. And yet now here I am, and, you know, not that young man anymore, and recognizing that there is an inconsistency and an inconstancy to what it means for me to be courageous. Because courage isn't fearlessness. Um, Even, by the way, in the classical discussions on courage from the ancient world, someone who has no fear is a fool. That's a foolish person. So courage is not fearlessness. There are things to be legitimately scared of, like great white sharks, terrified of them personally. And for good reason, I believe. So what can help us overcome our fear to have courage and strength? Do you know what Aristotle said when asked that question? This is a great classical answer to this. You want to overcome your fear and be a person of courage in the face face of real danger? Then look at honor and the glory that awaits you on the far side of your courageous moment as that which can help you overcome your fear. Um, Do a Google search on... um, St. Crispin's Day speech that uh, Kenneth Branagh does in the old Henry V Shakespeare play, right? Where he says, you know, brace yourself up like a man. Put on the courage because even if you die on this field, eventually someday they'll be talking about this day and you are here. Well, that's very Aristotelian. You want to overcome your fear, your lack of courage? Think about the honor that's awaiting you on the far side. And you know what? I'm almost positive. But the Apostle Paul was aware of all of those ideas that were bubbling around in the culture that he knew. But this is not Paul's instinct. Paul's not telling you to be courageous because of the honor that's awaiting you. Paul draws from Scripture and he says, Do you want to have courage? Then love the Lord and wait on Him. Which is in effect saying, trust completely on His promises. The inner conversations, the cognitive therapy that we have to do with ourselves. We have to remind ourselves that our lives are in his hands. And we can trust his promises and his promises alone. In short, the only means for godly courage and strength is found in Paul's previous injunction. Stand in the faith. I find myself as a dad... um, more often than not now, praying for my children that they have courage because it's needed in our world. Not brazenness, not machissimo, not praying for that, but for real courage in a culture that's saying so many things to them that just get absorbed so naturally because we live in it that are contrary to what God wants. And it takes courage in the face of that to say, I believe Number one, that my love of the Lord is more sweet than that. It's better. And that what God promises and says is true is better than any of the pablum that the culture has to offer. And as I pray that for my children, I'm reminded, oh, my Lord, remember me as well. Courage. And then the last thing. 
Oh, here it is. Verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. <laughs> this is the biggie, isn't it, right? I mean, this last clarity. Oh, by, by the way, before I hang up, everything that you do, do it in love. Bye. This last clarion call from Paul is a bite-sized summary of the whole book. It's the central concern of Corinthians. The whole message of Corinthians is given to us in one pithy statement right here. Let everything that you do be done in love. Remember 1 Corinthians 8? Knowledge all by itself, that, that will lead to arrogance. But knowledge with love is necessary. 1 Corinthians 13, right there in the middle of all the spiritual gifts, the most important thing is love. Faith, hope, love, the greatest of these is love. Why? Well, faith and hope won't last for eternity, right? When we see Christ and we enter into the new heavens and the new earth, faith and hope won't be needed anymore because we're in it. We see it. it's, It's now here. That which was promised is now present and actual. But love... John, I was reading this this week preparing for the sermon. Jonathan Edwards wrote an incredible sermon called um, uh, Charity and Its Fruits. And the last, the last little bit of the sermon is a, is a long, kind of complicated chapter where Edwards describes heaven as a world of love, unfettered love. But what is it? What does it mean to do everything in love? Well, let me give a slight stab at it. And this is not sufficient, but a little, a little bit. Love is release from the tyranny of our own selves for the sake of the other. Love is patterned after the love of Christ. I'm sure we can get sentimental about love. Love is like a red, red rose, newly sprung in June. But true love takes courage and it requires God's grace. I know the heat of romantic love has its charms. I know that. But the divesting of the self for the sake of the other requires courage and the long game. And the only source of love that Paul knows, the only source of love that can give us love out of ourselves, is knowing that we are known and loved. And two, ordering all things in our lives toward the love of him. It's really kind of a play on language here, right? The only source of our doing all things in love is the love of God. And that little phrase there, love of God, can properly be understood in two ways grammatically, right? Our love for God and God's love for us. That's it. That's what releases us from the tyranny of the self to enter into a life of love for others. Loving God and knowing that God loves us. All our other loves, all the goodies that we have in this life are given to us for the enjoyment of God and God alone because only God can truly be enjoyed. Everything else is a pale shadow. As many of you know, we spent five months earlier this year in in St. Andrews, Scotland, um, which was, for for Naomi and me, it was like going home. We we lived there before. And... um, being in St. Andrews, you know, for those of you who maybe have been there or seen it on TV, there's two beaches there. One's called the East Sands. That's where we spent most of our time. And then another beach is called the West Sands. That's right by the old course for you golfers out there. So there's the West Sands. And, and the West Sands are where they filmed that famous opening scene from Chariots of Fire. 
They're on their white shirts. And even the school that the boys went to every year, they do a Chariots of Fire race, and they're all supposed to wear white and run down the beach. And that, that's where that scene is. You know this movie, Chariots of Fire? Well, I, I forced my poor children to watch that movie while in St. Andrews. We're going to watch this, and you're going to be bored, but you're going to watch it anyway. Um, and and it's, it's the story of Eric Little, right, the, 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 the Scottish Presbyterian minister, died as a missionary in China. Um, who had a gift of running. And, of course, the story kind of revolves around the drama of his unwillingness to run on the Sabbath. <laughs> now, that's another sort of conversation, but that, it's, it's, it's remarkable. He stood on his principles, right, of what he believed that God had called him to do. He wouldn't run on the Sabbath. But there's a scene. I just love this scene. I, I made my kids watch the whole movie for this scene. I said, shh, listen to this scene. All right. Um, and it's that last bit where you see Eric Little because we're running around, and, and, and again, in classic, you know, sort of 80s style cinematography, everything slows down and the music comes on, and it's a little cheesy, but I love it because you hear, you see him running, and he looks kind of goofy running. You're throwing his head back, he's running around the corner, and then there's the line that comes over where Eric Little says, I love to run, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Beautiful. That's getting at it, right? Because the running is a gift that God had given Eric Little for the enjoyment of God. And this is the constant challenge that I think all of us live into. I know I live into it every day. This is why we're called to a life of repentance. There's no quick get-out-of-jail card on this one. The call to a life of repentance is our, our instinct to take the gift of running and turn it into God. Or to take the gift of marriage and turn it into God. To take the gift of our children and turn it into the ultimate end. And it's that constant challenge of the proper ordering of our loves. Because what Eric Little said was, when I run, which I love to do, I feel his pleasure. But when we reverse it, then things have gotten idolatrous. And we're doing it all the time. Um, and again, I don't, I don't want to get overly programmatic here, but I'll just say this. You, you know what you're feeling when it happens. I don't know how else to say it. I do. Things are disordered. Like, what's wrong? Internally, external, things aren't right. It's this constant challenge, the call to repentance, to order our loves properly so that the only end, which is God, he's the chief end of all things, um, it becomes the end, and all the gifts that he gives us become the means to that end and our love of him. Can I conclude today with a prayer that I ran across yesterday? I thought, oh, I'm going to read this to these folks tomorrow. This is a prayer from the Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard at the beginning of his book entitled The Works of Love. I'll conclude with this. How could love be rightly discussed if you were forgotten, O God, of love, source of all love in heaven and in earth, you who spared nothing but gave all in love? You who are love so that one who loves is what he is only by being in you? How could love properly be discussed if you were forgotten? You who made manifest what love is, you, our Savior and Redeemer, who gave yourself to save all. How could love be rightly discussed if you were forgotten? O Spirit of love, you who take nothing for your own, but remind us of that sacrifice of love. Remind the believer to love as he is loved and his neighbor as himself. Amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.